Hello and welcome to Stories of Scotland, a podcast where we swim in the seas of Scottish history, mythology and culture. I'm Annie. And I'm Jenny. And this water is freezing, Annie. It's also a dangerous spot for a paddle, as this week we're looking at illicit, illegal water. The water of corruption, fire water, or as we also know it, Ushkaveha, the water of life. Whiskey. Yes, of course. But this whiskey isn't coming from just anywhere. We're going to the Shabin. Now, the Shabin is essentially an illegal whiskey house. Woo! And I first learnt of Shabin's in Nucleus, the Nuclear Kate Ness archives, which are up in Wick. Okay. Now, I was looking through police constable archives, <laughs> which I find really intriguing because I like to look at historic crimes. What What's like a classic historic crime? Breaking, breaking the spokes on someone's wagon wheels? Well, one of the more common crimes in Wick was sailors or men who were meant to be part of a ship's crew refusing to go back to sea. <laughs> and then the law would have to step in. And just put them, push them onto the boat? It's like the reverse of a gangplank. <laughs> <laughs> You're going back on that boat plank. <laughs> or they'd find them or lock them up. Ah, uh, either or. Anyway, one time I was deep in a Victorian Northern Constabulary criminal charges book, wow. which is the record of all of the crimes of Kate Ness. <laughs> and I found a reference to Asha Bean. Wow, okay. It was actually quite a sad reference because right below it was a wee boy named Jolly Roger, or Roger Jolly, who had been charged for throwing snowballs at a policeman, oh, which is seems that... terribly unfair for poor little... Roger Jolly. Is that because he was meant to be getting back on the boat, Annie, and he was not Jolly Roger. He was (laughs) (laughs) raging Roger. (laughs) So in stunning, swirling letters, I learnt that in the dark winter of 1865, when it was indeed snowing, Isabel Jack, a 40-year-old widow, was charged with keeping a shabeen. She was fined five pounds for this crime. And that was me hooked. I wanted to know the story of Shabin's, the secret illicit bar, and everything about it. Well, we know that the word Shabin is imported from Ireland, coming from the Irish Gaelic Shibin, and meaning illicit whiskey. And if there's one special trait that both Ireland and Scotland share, it's blow your top off strong home brew and illegal whiskey. The Shabin and illicit whiskey go hand in hand. From brewing to selling, they were both completely hidden from the prying gazes of authorities and the taxes that they impose. The illicit whiskey still and the Shabin are the mavericks of the public house. Yes, and I find myself really bewitched by this little piece of Gaelic culture, especially because Shabins are all but gone from Scotland nowadays. Yes, all but gone. Oh no, Jenny, you're not shabining again, are you? No, 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 just um, just don't go in the garage for a couple of months. Mm. Nah, nah, but, but, uh, but people would go to drink whiskey in the garage, uh, in the shabines, <clears throat> because it was a lot cheaper than the licensed public houses. <laughs> yes, it was, or the pubs as we know them nowadays. Yes, pubs. People running shabines avoided the taxes that were imposed upon pubs by the government, but... That means that they also couldn't purchase legal alcohol and so often serve their own homemade homebrew. Plus, nothing makes whiskey taste better than a little bit of misbehaviour. The riskiness of the shabin enhances the flavour. 
Well, it would need to be a whiskey cocktail, Jenny, because raw homebrew tastes pretty dreadful. Well, you'll just have to find out in a couple months. <laughs> <laughs> Whiskey has been distilled in Scotland for centuries, with the first written evidence of whiskey found in 15th century exchequer rolls. These are the records that ensure the royal finances were getting their fair cut of money from taxes and justice. Now, it's likely that the distillation of whiskey goes back way before this. We know mead, an alcoholic beverage made with honey, was popular with the Vikings and the Celts. The technique for whiskey, however, is thought to have come from French winemaking. Mm, so I think the distilling techniques that are being shared throughout Europe in this medieval period are coming from the monasteries, mm. who are using alcohol for both medicinal and ceremonial purposes. <laughs> and of course, like you say, you have honey mead in circulation, you have any of the alcohols that you could make from berries, um, from apples, uh, medieval Brits would be brewing cider. There's probably some English wines going around. Ah, but for wines you need grapes, and they have no chance of survival in the Scottish climate. So, barley was used instead. Yes, and once we've got the barley, the only other ingredients for some wonderful whiskey are yeast and the purest spring water. That's it. And over the centuries, the same three simple ingredients have not changed. From barley, water and yeast comes the defining drink of our small nation, whiskey. There's some people down at Bar Drinks who would like to fight you on that one, Annie. (laughs) (laughs) Not only have the ingredients not changed, but the distillation process itself has also remained fairly constant. For those of you who are unfamiliar with distillation, it is the process of making whiskey. First, the barley is malted, so germinated, and then dried and ground down into a fine flour-like substance called grist. The grist is then mashed up with water, which creates a lovely brown mixture called worst. Yeast is added to the worst and the fermentation begins. Here, the sugars which have been created during the process are converted into alcohols, just what we're after. After three or four days, the mixture, which is now called wash, is about 9% alcohol and ready for distillation. At this point, the wash is heated in a still, which separates the alcohol from the wash by evaporation. The alcohol vapours are then cooled and condensed down to create a clear spirit, which is about 72% alcohol. Wow, Jenny, from washed to wash, that's a lot of names for things. It is, yes. But basically, it's barley plus water plus yeast and heat, and you've got yourself the water of life. Marvellous. And you can't forget the still. Ah, no. Stills are copper vessels in which whiskey is heated and cooled. They are at the very heart of any whiskey making. And nowadays, each distillery has uniquely shaped stills each claiming that their shape is what makes their whiskey superior. Yes, and if you've ever seen them, these stills are huge contraptions. They sit in the distilleries and each year produce massive amounts of whiskey. Yes, but the stills that our illegal brewers would have been using were very different. Jenny, here's a picture of one such still, 
Please, could you describe it for our listeners? Aha, wow. Okay, so what I'm looking at looks like a modified pizza oven with a sort of bronze jug and amphora on top of it. And on top of that is another jug, but upside down. So their two necks are on top of each other, like it's wearing a little jug hat. And then the spout of the jug on top is pointing down and filling into a third jug. It sounds like you're describing some kind of alchemy here, Jenny. Like you're trying to make gold out of water. It's essentially what they were doing. (laughs) But ultimately, it looks like a highly sophisticated, lightweight, compact, collapsible, multi-use object that, in my humble podcaster's opinion, is far more impressive than the big modern-day stills. But why, why are they like this, Annie? Why be made so versatile and small? Well, they weren't always made this way. For centuries, it was common for families in the rural highlands to have their own domestic stills, to brew whiskey and beer for their own consumption. Now, the distillation of whiskey was considered a right of man, a right of woman, a right for almost everyone and their dog. And most of this domestic brewing was actually done by women. These stills would have been about 10 gallons and would have been built to stay in just one place. And would they be using these domestic stills to make whiskey that they would also sell? Or was it just for like their own families drinking? Um, kind of. So excess whiskey could be traded for goods um, and also many landlords would happily accept whiskey as a currency to pay rent. <laughs> but it wasn't until 1644 when the government imposed taxes on the sale of spirits in order to fund the Covenant army, that smuggling of whiskey really began. Ah, yes. As taxes went up, the cost of whiskey naturally went up with it. The Highlanders realised that they were in a position to take advantage of this and began undercutting the legal whiskey by avoiding the tax altogether. Within months of the act being passed, smuggling was in full flow and most of the people on the land were fully behind it with the lower classes doing the brewing and transporting, and the upper classes happily turning a blind eye as this paid the rents. Whiskey! Yay! But over the next hundred years, the laws got tighter, and the landowners began to resent the industrious smuggling system, which was undercutting many other foreign imports as well. So the first major blow to the illicit whiskey industry of smuggling and home brew was an act which limited the size of home stills to just two gallons, when they used to be ten. Now, the final nail in the whiskey barrel was in 1781, when an act came in which banned all domestic distilling. The following year, almost 2,000 stills were seized from Highlanders. And so, distilling left the home and went into the hills. Now, it's hard enough walking up those glens in modern hiking gear, but can you imagine doing it with a big, cumbersome whiskey still? Ah, of course. So one of these compact little stills would be much easier to carry up a Scottish mountainside. Yes, and not just to carry, but also to dismantle and hide if necessary. Ah. See, in an attempt to crack down on illegal whiskey making, landowners employed gaugers. Now, these were people who would collect tax on any whiskey distilled and sold on a person's land. The term gauger literally means to gauge or measure an amount. 
Now, if the whiskey makers got wind of a gauger on his way to rumble their operation, they could quickly and efficiently dismantle and bury their still, as though it was never there. Ah, smart smugglers. Yes, but the gaugers had their own way of hunting out the whiskey makers. They looked for the smoke coming from the fires needed in the distillation process. Ah. However, as well as being able to move their stills, whiskey makers would burn juniper in their fires because it burns with an almost smokeless flame and so wouldn't give away the location of where they were distilling. Aha! And so begins the thrilling, century-long Highland cat-and-mouse chase to distill, smuggle and sell illegal whiskey in Scotland. Meow! So, what does the mouse do? Does the mouse squeak? <laughs> <laughs> what is a But, like, if it was a whiskey mouse, it'd be like... <laughs> Our first tale takes place in the Ladder Hills. We find a marvellous oral history of a sneaky Shabin, which was recorded in the 1950s. It's a recording of James Taylor, who was a resident of the area, and he recalled smuggling history. The Ladder Hills lie in the northeast of the Cairngorm National Park, but it wasn't a national park back in those days. <laughs> <laughs> In the late 1700s to the early 1900s, locals would take advantage of the isolation and remoteness offered by some of the braes of the Ladder Hills and establish whiskey stills. The illicit whiskey was smuggled out of the hills using a large number of remote and little-known hill tracks. And one such smuggling track was called Ladder Road, and it winds deep into the far reaches of Glen Nochty. And James Taylor's great-grandmother, Epi Lucky Thane, lived there. Lucky was a well-known character in Glenlivet and the surrounding area, and she lived up in this glen in a wee house. Well, I've seen it described less as a house and more as a kind of hovel, a little <laughs> shack. <laughs> and it wasn't so much that she lived there. She more, um, as the stories go, kind of squatted there. Yes, well... The Earl of Fife, who owned the land at the time, hired a man named Duff to evict all of his tenants from the land in order to put sheep there instead. Classic story. And luckily, our Lucky was one of these evictees, and so was left with nowhere to go. So, she built a wee ramshackle house overnight. By morning, there was smoke rising from the chimney of the house. And at this time, it was said that if there was smoke coming out of the chimney of a house built overnight, then the person inside could not be evicted again. Well, Jenny, this definitely isn't Scots law. It was more of a kind of folklore law. (laughs) Okay, well, even if Duff had tried to say this to her, she had a counter-argument, for she had built the house in the fork of a river splitting, which she claimed was a no-man's land. <laughs> this definitely isn't how property law works, Jenny. <laughs> well, luckily, it worked for Lucky, for she had defied the Earl and his man Duff, and from then on, the house-slash-hovel was known as Duff's defiance to the locals, who were all massive fans of her actions. 
I mean, you work in land management. Surely you know that if you build a house on a river fork, you can't just claim it as your own land. I think if you say it with confidence and you're waving a pitchfork, Duff technically cannot get you out. True. But it does certainly seem as though she had luck on her side being allowed to stay mm-hmm. there. Or maybe it was just the natural moat around her. Or the alligator she put in it that she got from the wee manny down the pub. Now, I've heard the story of Lucky too, and there were definitely no alligators in it. Maybe a kelpie or two. <laughs> well, whatever the reason, she was allowed to stay in her little house and tried to get by with whatever she had left, which was a cow. So, being a natural entrepreneur, she milked the cow and made cheese to sell. From this, she also spotted a gap in the market and decided to sell bread to pair with this fine cheese of the glens. But she did realise this wasn't quite going to cut it. So she decided to expand again and began to sell large quantities of illegal whiskey. Is that where you got that large delivery of camembert, Jenny? <laughs> it's gouda. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's perfect for pairing with cheese and bread. Illicit whiskey. If you like your bread and cheese tasting like burning hot fire, then yes, no better <laughs> pair in the glen. <laughs> And so Duff Defiance became known for selling average cheese but great aquavitae and was soon a well-established Shabin. Now, if one day someone who Lucky didn't recognise came into the Shabin, she had to be cautious about selling them whiskey, for it could be an undercover gauger. She'd lay down the bread and the cheese and wait for them to ask for a dram. Now, she had two options for this. What's it going to be, boys? A half-gill or a gill? Or, in other words, an eighth of a pint or a quarter of a pint. Or, in other words again, a big dram or a massive dram. (laughs) (laughs) And if the customer turned out to be a gauger and tried to arrest her for this illegal sale of whiskey, well, she'd just say that she'd charged them for the bread and cheese and the dram was on the house. (laughs) Well, the dram was on the hovel. (laughs) Yes, she was a smart woman. But these tactics would have been employed by many of the Shabins, each with its own techniques for evading the gauges. In one historic account of a Shabin in Glasgow, they labelled all of their whisky as vinegar and Ooh. lime juice. Ooh. Imagine mixing that one up on the fish and chips. <laughs> <laughs> so if the gauges came in, they could say, we have no alcohol here, we only sell lime juice. Ah, see, interesting tactics. But they weren't always necessary. There's a tale of the police heading up to Lucky's one Sunday afternoon. When this news spread around the town, a suitor, or a shoemaker, rushed up the glen to see for himself what would become of Lucky. But he was too late. As he was on his way up, he ran into the two policemen, winding their way down. However, Lucky wasn't with them. In astonishment, he exclaimed, Well, I thought you were up to arrest her! And the policemen replied with a hiccup and a giggle, Ah, the woman must have some way of making a living. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently Duff Defiance was very busy on a Sunday. Wow, so she even had the police drinking. No, no, they were just a big fan of her cheese and bread. Clearly, that's (laughs) what got them hiccuping. (laughs) Now, while Lucky sold illegal whiskey, she didn't distill it herself. Round the back of her shabine, she had a space for 16 whiskey anchors. Ah, yes. So an anchor is the whiskey cask of the time. 
usually able to hold about eight gallons around 30 litres, which is a lot of whiskey, <laughs> round the back of Lucky's hovel. Surely someone would notice these huge containers. Ah, well she had space for 16 anchors to be buried. And legend has it that some of these have never been dug up. So Annie, do you fancy a wee trip up to Glen Nochty? You, me, a shovel, two pint glasses? Mmm, Jenny, imagine a malt that is aged by 150 years, just sitting in the bog, ripe for the drinking. Aye, it's your bog-standard 300% alcohol whisky. <laughs> now, if Lucky wasn't making the whisky, where was it all coming from, Jenny? Ah, this whisky was flowing out of the glens, for there were up to 200 compact and hidden distilleries deep in the recesses of these hills. So I'm sure she had no supply issues. And in fact, what made Lucky so successful was that her little Shabin was located on the Ladder Road, one of the secret smuggling tracks that many of the distillers of the area travelled. So as the men would pass on their way to sell whiskey in the bigger towns, they'd lighten their load for the ponies and take an anchor from their wagon and sell it to Lucky on the way. Hi, Lucky. (laughs) (laughs) And this whiskey that Lucky was selling was much desired compared to the legal whiskey available. You know, shop local. (laughs) (laughs) Especially coming from this area, which was regarded as the stronghold for Scottish illegal distilling. The whiskey that was being sold would have been possibly up to 70% ABV, so it was much stronger than the legal whiskey. To put it into context, most whiskies these days are around 43% ABV. Oh, Annie, this stuff was rocket fuel. Yes, it was also pure, so it wasn't mixed with water or weaker whiskies, which the legal stuff often would have been. In a letter to the Inverness Courier in 1930, a reader wrote, Era. It is notorious that the spirit distilled by the smugglers is infinitely more wholesome, of a finer flavour, and in every way more highly prized than the licensed whisky. Eh? As someone who's quite local to this area, <laughs> I'm really offended by that accent, Jenny. I have been living here for two years, and that's where I got the Inverness accent. <laughs> <laughs> so Lucky's Shabin was a place for locals to gather and drink cheap, strong and tasty whisky. But she was still operating in a rural place, so where was the whisky heading once it left the protection of the lands of the Ladder Hills? It was going where the demand was, which was just about everywhere in Scotland. But from this area, it was mainly heading to the settlements in Aberdeenshire and beyond into the far highlands. But it wasn't as easy as walking into town with ponies laden with barrels of whisky and selling it, They had to be more subtle than that. Well, the smugglers would usually travel in convoys so that they were able to protect themselves from the attack of the gauger. I imagine there was nothing subtle about these large groups of Highland folk wandering into town. Ah, but Annie, they're professional smugglers. Subtle is their middle name. And do you know what every smuggler's surprise subtle trick is? Um... Are they good at distraction card tricks? Not quite. Sheep bladders. 
Oh, Danny, I know that the high alcohol would kill the bacteria, <laughs> but this makes my skin crawl just thinking about putting whiskey inside a sheep's bladder. Ugh, don't be silly, Annie. It adds depth and flavour. It's where the famous saying, a wee dram comes from. <laughs> I don't even understand that, Jenny, but that's definitely incorrect. A wee dram. Like it's in a bladder, so we. <laughs> <laughs> So naive. <laughs> but yes, the smugglers would get to the edges of town where they had elaborate underground distribution networks set up in collaboration with the locals. The locals would know when the smugglers were arriving and meet them in a hidden spot. Here, they would decant the whiskey into sheep ladders, this bit is true, and hide them in all sorts of places. They'd hang them under women's skirts, they'd put them under men's top hats, and even smuggle them in like pregnant bellies. Wow, people will go to such extreme extents for a wee dram. Hey, now you're getting it. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> let's get back to the oval history, Jenny. <laughs> James Taylor, the man who told this story. He had been a soldier in the First World War. And he explained that even the whiskey for the sergeant's mess down in England came from this area. So he seems to have had whiskey trickle from the northeast of Scotland to different corners of his life, wherever he was in the world. And no doubt it had been in a bladder or two on its journey to him, where it ended up in a bladder once more. Jenny! It's the circle of the water of life, Annie. Truly beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Jenny, I am highly concerned. I suspect that you may be slightly morally corrupt and running an illegal bar in our garage. Annie, no, no, it's a perfectly legal cheese and bread bar. Well then, even more reason to go up to Sutherland, where we'll learn about the reasons why a certain minister, Reverend Grant, was concerned about the state of Shabines in Helmsdale. For anyone who hasn't had the fortune of visiting Helmsdale, it's on the far northeast coast of Scotland. So, Jenny, you need to be a concerned citizen writing to the John O'Groat Journal in 1899. Helmsdale, Shubining. Sir, the entire community of the two parishes of Loth and Kildonan feel themselves under a debt of gratitude to the Reverend Mr Grant for denouncing the insidious curse of Shubining which has this community firmly grasped in its toils. He referred to this subject from the pulpit and showed the evils arising to parents and families from having such facilities for getting drink at all hours. This situation, I believe, has been going on for years, but latterly it has become so outrageously public that someone needs to start the campaign against the evil inside these places and the vile staff which they pay their good money to. In Helmsdale, there are two shabines which probably dispose of much spirits. There is more drink consumed in the most disgusting and degrading manner than ever in the days of licence. Anyone can see the whisky in small or large casks taken to these places. It is not even done secretly, but openly 
and fearlessly. Still, it is not too late if this matter is taken up in a firm manner by the authorities, who ought to have checked its progress long ago. Yours, very teetotal, big old killjoy observer. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Jenny. Added a couple of words in when describing yourself at the end there, I see. I was just embodying the character I'm playing. (laughs) So this was quite a curious letter from a concerned person of Helmsdale at the end of the 1800s. Curious slash furious, am I right? (laughs) I think this is going in with themes of the temperance movement, which would have been really popular at the time. Now, the temperance movement came over from America. It was essentially trying to encourage the whole population to quit alcohol completely, to abstain and become teetotal. Is that where teetotal comes from? Temperance? Yes. Cool. But it's a really fascinating movement, which has very interesting links to all kinds of other social movements and reforms of the 1800s. And they actually have some really catchy wee songs. Oh, it's like how they teach you not to cross the road when there's cars coming with little hedgehogs. Yes, with singing hedgehogs. <laughs> but the the temperance movement of the 1800s would do it with magic lantern slides. They get big groups of people together in a hall. They'd show them a magic lantern show about how great it was oh. to abstain from alcohol. And then they'd teach them a bunch of really catchy modern songs nice. about how drink is bad. A lot of the slides that they'd show people were kind of scare tactics. Ooh, is it like, this is what will happen to you if you drink a pint of whiskey and then it's just a picture of a regular Scottish person? (laughs) (laughs) Jenny, you're offending our proud country. I think I'm making our proud country prouder. (laughs) (laughs) It would be something like a man is supposed to be working but instead he goes to the pub Mm. he comes home and then his children can't afford to eat Mm. and then he dies of a condition relating to alcohol wow that sounds like a kind of fun family night out at least you get to sing some songs but i'm not sure that any song is catchy enough to stop me drinking my prosecco annie So our concerned citizen isn't really arguing against the Shabin for tax reasons. They seem more worried about the moral and ethical activities of people who are drinking wildly strong home-brewed alcohol in the Shabins. They're worried about the behaviour of the people who are able to afford cheap alcohol after they've bought it and consumed it. Yes, so I included this example because I think that the 1800s and the temperance agenda start to play a role in how we view alcohol from a moral perspective in Scotland, Mm. seeing drunkenness and the shabine as a gateway to other crimes and misbehaving. And as well, the temperance movement is a kind of turning point for starting to see alcohol consumption as being unhealthy. Mm. Even nowadays, part of the reason that alcohol is so expensive in Scotland is because of government intervention to try to encourage people to drink less of it. Okay. So studies show us that the cheaper that booze is, the more likely people are to drink it to excess. So I do think it's a good thing that there are a lot of initiatives trying to control Scotland's alcohol problems, Mm -hmm. because we do have them, Mm -hmm. and trying to encourage a culture of drinking within moderation 
And as strange as it sounds, I see some of this rooted within the temperance movement. Hmm, definitely. However, when I look at Shabins of the past, I find them very important places culturally. And I also find it really hard not to enjoy imagining the wee village of Helmsdale with illegal alcohol flowing around. Well, there's definitely something about Shabins that makes me think of rebellion and freedom and evading tax. Aye, there's something very subversive about them. They make me think of bothies and brew and these kind of informal get-togethers. That often end up with something on fire. Mm. I have noticed. (laughs) Maybe Reverend Mr Grant did have a point about cutting out shabines to stop crime. Ah, well, either way, whiskey wouldn't be what it is today if it were not for the humble shabine. So, sorry, Reverend Mr Grant, sir, window curtain twitcher man. I think the story of illegal whiskey, the story of the Shabin itself, tells us a lot about the undercurrents of Scottish culture. The Shabin existed as a place to avoid tax, a place for secrets and a place for homebrew. And I really, really love the story of Epi Lucky Thane and her Shabin. She had the Shabin as a way of earning money and providing a sanctuary for people to drink. Her story is one of perseverance more than anything. She was prepared to stand up for her Shabin and fight off the gaugers whenever they arrived. Slash, give them a lot of whiskey. (laughs) She'll take that hit financially. Yes, Lucky Thane was brilliant. Plus, I was really surprised when I saw that Shabins were not only popular in Ireland and Scotland. So Britain and Scotland have a really shameful history of colonisation, And this means that we can find some Gaelic words in some very unexpected places. Okay. So, for example, under apartheid in South Africa, indigenous Africans were banned from entering bars. So, industrious black African women opened up shabines. Hey! These women were known as shabine queens. (laughs) I love it. And they offered a place for activists to meet and plan and for indigenous South Africans to celebrate their culture, which I think is the ultimate spirit of the Shabin, and I love that it has become popular in South Africa in this way. And the Shabin culture can also be found sprinkled in the history of America and Canada, brought by Irish and Scottish colonial and diaspora communities. And I know in some states, and possibly our garage, moonshine brewing is still a very popular hobby. Also Australia, I think. But wherever they are in the world, I find myself fascinated with the Shabin because these places feel like a kind of hidden underbelly of whiskey. Nowadays, when I think of whiskey, I think of big fancy tours around the giant distilleries. Mm. However, what I love about the Shabin is it's a more intimate dram, you know? The forbidden drink that tastes better. Yes, though based on some of the homebrew that your family has provided us with, we know that the illicitness of drink does not equate to its deliciousness. 
Jenny, I am taking great offence at this. There is no finer turnip wine in all of the land. Mm. Our turnip wine was aged for 25 years, I'll have you know. Well, yes, but the reason there's no finer turnip wine in all the land, Annie, is because no one else brews turnip wine. (laughs) It was terrible. And the reason that it's 25 years old is it was so bad back then that no one drunk it, which is why it still haunts this earth and was gifted to us to try. (laughs) Oh, Annie, I'm the ghost of the tragic turnip distilled into something even more ghastly than a neep. (laughs) Stop being... It's a nip of a neep. (laughs) No, Jenny. Someone give me a nip of that neep wine. (laughs) (laughs) Cut out the creepy neepy, Jenny. (laughs) So I found a poem to end on. It's by John Milne of Glenlivet, and it's all about illegal whiskey, actually set in the area where Lucky Thane's Shabine existed. Here comes an officer of excise, the Highland smugglers did despise, and got preventative men to rise, to survey their glens in the morning. We'll make them submit unto our will, we'll burn their bothies in the hill. We'll seize their whiskey every gill among Nochty Glen in the morning. But I give advice here to excise men that nearer home should he remain. Don't venture for the sake of gain to survey these hills in the morning. Though you hoist your flag of distress, you'll find their courage nonetheless. We'll meet you in the Highland dress among Nochty Glens in the morning. So may their cattle sell and country thrive to be as happy men as now alive and may they brew their whiskey two to five among Nochty Glens in the morning. And if good-hearted men do but pass by they are the lads we'll not deny to give them a drink if they be dry among Nochty Glens in the morning. But our gentlemen surveyed the hills and sore destroyed our smuggling stills made their tenants submit unto their wills among Nochty Glens in the morning. Yes, this poem goes on and actually seems to end by inciting another Jacobite rising. Ah, that's uh, probably when you know you've had one too many drams. Or maybe that you just need one more. Well, on that note, let's ourselves have a wee dram to our wonderful Patreons. Yes, thank you all so much for subscribing to our Patreon. We are really excited to be bringing you more mini-myths, five-minute fairy tales, and other bits of content. So, without further ado, thank you so much, Kevin and Tadam Riddle. Papa the Selkie. Great to know that we have support from the Magical Seal community. We got big downloads in the ocean. <laughs> Dominika Malinowski. Sarah. And Sarah. Chris and Anne. And David Phelps. We are so grateful for you all becoming our patrons and supporting our wee podcast. If you at home would also like to join up and help support us, then please go to patreon.com slash stories of Scotland. Or you can also support us by rating the podcast and leaving us a wee review because it helps other people to find us and hear these strange Scottish stories in the Shabine with us. <laughs> Thank you all so much for listening to Stories of Scotland. Slangeva. Slangeva.
it used to be that the locals in Aberdeenshire would laugh at anyone who added water to their whiskey to make it more palatable, because they knew the secret was to water it down with sheep wee. Jenny, absolutely no one did this. This is a factual history podcast and you're just making this up now. Uh, We are also a podcast filled with myths and I'm just trying to get some of my own myths into the mix. The very dodgy whiskey we mix. And what would you call this mythological drink, Jenny? Ooh, uh, a lamb dram. <laughs> Listeners, you can't see Annie hold her head in her hands. 